Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where each week we speak to pharma company owners and industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. This week I'm joined by Rachel Jones. Uh, Rachel is the managing partner at Switch, uh, a rare disease uh, patient engagement uh, agency. Rachel, um, you and I have only spoken just recently. Uh, I think we were both, you were heading away, I was away. Um, working remotely but welcome to the show um i've given you a, a short intro there um for for those listening in those who are perhaps not connected with you um give us an overview of, of who you are um who switch are and, and what you guys do okay so so thanks james thanks for that so um as you said my name is rachel jones i am one of the managing partners of switch and switch is a patient engagement agency we actually think we're the only um, rare disease patient engagement agency in Europe. We like to make that claim. We are the, the only one. Um, and we basically connect pharma patients and actually not forgetting physicians. We connect all those people together to deliver solutions for the pharmaceutical industry. So pharma companies are our typical customer. So um, we've been running Switch. I've been in Switch probably about three years. I'm in Switch. I'm a 50% partner. Switch has been running for five years. So I actually met my business partner. Um, it's, it's on, I'll go on to talk about this, the power of weak links, that I met Rob Wire, who co-runs Switch, through a friend on a plane going from Barcelona, coming from a conference. You didn't know that, did you? Coming from a conference. That's where it all happened. Yeah. On a plane coming back from Barcelona. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that is incredible. And I, I guess, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that are looking forward to getting back to conferences and traveling and, and everything else. Um, so the, the fact that you've set that up is probably, there's no doubt a few people out there quite envious um, of that, Rachel. Uh, but look, one, the, the first thing I want to quickly drill into, um, you say that you're the first or the only um, patient engagement agency. Rare disease, yeah, patient engagement agency, yeah. Um, for, for rare disease what's for, for me what's the difference between a patient engagement agency and a patient recruitment agency okay so there's, there is a big difference and they do overlap as well a little bit but a patient recruitment agency typically looks to find patients to go into clinical trials so mm -hmm. we can do a little bit of that as well but that's not our, our main area our main focus we work with patients to actually develop solutions for pharmaceutical industry so that's the difference but it does overlap a little bit so we do help out occasionally um CROs so clinical research organizations to actually mm -hmm. find those patients so and it's interesting you say that that one of the problems that we often have when we work with with pharma companies with is actually finding patients so that's a massive massive deal in rare disease actually mm -hmm. locating people and not just for clinical trials but locating people to actually take the take the drug but to also give us insight and you know attend focus groups for example finding people is a really big problem because mm -hmm. it, by nature what it is some people there can be one in ten thousand who have a rare disease so that means we have to work globally because of that we don't tend to work in just one market we work yeah. globally you know there can be just a hundred people with that rare condition wow incredible so on the on the global scale then um look for, for me as a recruitment business we've I, i've never done any recruitment in the uk which is, is crazy everything i've done has been overseas and i know that often that has meant early mornings, late nights, calls at stupid o'clock in the morning sometimes. How do you guys juggle that as a business? 
I mean, we're cool with it, to be honest with you. One of the reasons that I wanted my own company, one of the reasons was actually for that flexibility that I realised my life and my work, because I love what I do. I'm absolutely fine with it all overlapping. So I'm absolutely fine with getting up early in the morning. So I've had a call with New Zealand at seven o'clock this morning. Um, Morning or evening person? Um, I've trained myself to be a morning person. I used to be a night person. I've actually totally changed myself to be a morning person, deliberately done so, and that now is, is a habit for me. So I'd much prefer to be up, up early in the morning, yeah, for sure. Um, but we do have partners and we have people who work for us all around the world as well. So we can give that 24 seven cover, but absolutely fully appreciate. We, we will get up and, and work whenever we have to. We'll go where the customer is interesting and look how have you trained yourself to be a morning person because i've i've been i've done the same you know i was before i got into to, um i guess work i was you know a sports person so i never necessarily used to get up too early because my day was very flexible i started working i was working in the international markets most clients were southeast asia and the pacific and i very quickly got into the habit of going to bed at nine o'clock, getting up early, doing my gym session uh, before work, et cetera. What, how, how have you gone about that? Because um, people often say, oh, I'm just not a morning person, but I just think it's a case of shifting your day. How, how have you gone about it? I mean, it's easier in the summer, isn't it? I find it really hard in the winter, really mm -hmm. hard to do so. So now with all these light mornings, that is so much easier. But I think I did actually, I mean, I'm a real self-help kind of addict. I love self-help books and business books and, yeah. and so much evidence about entrepreneurs rising early in the morning the miracle morning book I mean I get you guys you guys may have read those books I heard of them and it was a case of actually lots of things I did realize I gained more control by being up in the morning um, it's a very busy household here I've got my partner we've got a dog we've got now two, two young people who've just finished uni or going to work. So I get up earlier to kind of get ahead, really. Um, I think it putting the alarm clock half an hour earlier each time, so it becomes just little tiny changes. You know, the behavioral science bit, mm -hmm. change, change it by 20 minutes each day. Um, and it pays dividends. And also I realized if I don't stay up late, I don't eat as much, right? So one of the ways I try not to eat and pick up food is I actually, go to bed early and read or have a night, you know, I do that and light candles and then shut the kitchen off, shut the cupboards off. Amazing. Now I think there's, there's multiple benefits and that I won't even get into that too much otherwise you have me, have me talking um, all day. Um, so look, that's, that's the current setup at, at Switch at the moment. That's how you'd like to, to run things. You, you know, trained yourself to be a morning person. Um, but how did you first even get into to this world of, patient engagement, pharma, um, you know, what's, you know, what was Rachel Jones doing many years ago, you know, when you first got into this? Oh, many, many years ago, I trained as a, as a pharmacist. So um, I was going to be a dentist. I didn't have the manual dexterity to be a dentist. I liked science, but, but mm -hmm. I liked people as well. And that was the reason to be, to do pharmacy. But it, it became really apparent to me when I did, I practiced as an NHS pharmacist that, the bit for me that lit my fire was how people behaved. So there was a place for therapeutics and drugs, absolutely a place. But for me, I'd see more and more people every day. I'd see patients every day in their families and actually just tweaks to their lifestyle 
would have made a monumental difference. You know, mm -hmm. often there are 10 to 15 therapies. Well, when pharma, you know, deliver a drug to somebody or want a prescription, actually that patient can be on about 10 therapies. It's not just one drug. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it was a lot of lifestyle changes, social changes, that would actually, that was the bit that really excited me, the bit that we call around the pill. That's the bit that excited me. Um, and I wanted to take what I knew as a pharmacist into industry for that reason. I desperately wanted to bring those insights in. Um, and I used to drive past a large pharma company that I, I went to work for AstraZeneca, a large pharma company. And I used to drive past those big ivory towers, those big buildings, and actually lustfully think I'll never, I'll never work there. And um, yeah, I did. It, there was a turning point where I realized that the, the pull was too much. And it was one Christmas and I spent the whole of Christmas applying to anything that was actually, and I won't say non-customer facing because I still did locum as a pharmacist, but anything that was actually going to use those skills, I applied for lots of things, went through quite a tough recruitment process and, and got into industry. Mm -hmm. That took a number of years to deploy those, those insights into industry. Wow. So that, that Christmas was, that was, I guess, the turning point for you then by the sounds of things. Um, and because I, I, I was speaking to Adam about this just, just recently about the amount of applications that people actually put in sometimes to yeah. get into the industry because it is ridiculously hard. Yeah. Um, so what, how did you do it almost over that Christmas decide I'm going to get in, get into this. Um, how did you go about that? Because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people wondering what the secret was for those out there who have, you know, perhaps sent in hundreds, thousands of applications. What did you do that you think allowed you to, to get the foot in the door? I think, I think actually having time served doing something else, being a healthcare professional, I think that was helpful. Um, I think I would have struggled going straight from university. So I didn't apply straight from uni because I believed you needed a PhD. So there was this almost like urban myth, you needed a PhD. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, you may maybe do for research, but there are tons of other jobs where you don't need a PhD. Um, and I think maturity, gaining a bit of confidence, being outside in the outside world. It's, it's like I've told my kids recently, having left uni, you know, you need to get a job because actually you need to learn to adult. You actually need to see the world. You need to manage people. You need to see, you know, you need to do that whole gambit of things and use those transferable skills, I think. Um, I think it's a numbers game as well. I think you've got, I, I agree, people put multiple applications in. Um, it, it would be a numbers game as well. It's a bit of both. I think the, the point that I picked out there and that I would say is probably the, the biggest one is probably having just that little bit of, of life experience and general confidence in the adult world um, because you don't know it until it kind of hits you. You know, I was always very confident as a, you know, young uh, or sort of late teenager. You know, I was traveling around the world doing boxing and, and things. So I was I was very confident yeah. and I thought I was confident when I first went into the business world. But I think looking back now, there just wasn't that air of real internal confidence that you get that comes with, with age. Um, so I think that that is probably the, the biggest thing. And you can't, you can't fake that. You've kind yeah. of, sorry to curse, but like you've whittled out a lot of the bullshit fakeness out of your life, haven't you? And you're just like, no, this is what I want now. This is what I can do. This is what value I can bring to you. 
you're rounded, aren't you, as a person, you know, that you, and I do think that I'd, I'd seen very sick people, I'd worked with physicians, I'd managed people, um, I'd actually managed people through, there was a time when, um, uh, you might remember there were there were um, mainland bombings in the UK, so the IRA at that point was was bombing. And I was, was I was quite young, but I do remember it being on. Really the... young, I'm aging myself here now, and I don't want to. <laughs> but it's so there were there were mainland bombings, and and actually they there was one that went off in Warrington outside a boots store, and um, at that point it was actually a friend of mine who was in that boots store, um, and had to deal with the people who were had shrapnel injuries. But from that day on, we were getting bomb scares, we were getting, and I remember being quite young, I was just out of university, and I was really young, I had to deal with the police, bomb scares, I had to deal with um, staff who were looking to me as their leader, and it almost felt like I have no right to be their leader, I'm some kid with a pharmacy degree, but I'm managing this store, and all of a sudden, I grew up pretty damn quickly. As a, so I do think that life experience is so important, but I think for anybody, you can get that anywhere. The trick is, somebody once told me the trick is, to think of it as like a series of um, trapezes and you're on the trapeze and then you're flipping to the next one and the next one using some of that life experience. So I, I personally believe you can begin anywhere and, and gain those trapezes, those trapeze movements. I do. No, I, I agree. So look, moving from, from there, look, you ended up at AZ, um, I guess, in the news a lot recently. Um, I know that Adam has been doing some work with, with AZ as, as well. How did, did that go? So you'd gone from being a, a pharmacist, you landed yourself in, in industry. What was that transition like? What was going through your head at that time? I think I was so pleased and honoured to be there actually it was almost an honour to drop into that role and that was actually I dropped into supply chain that's mm. one of the hardest roles I've ever had supply chain really hard um what was going through my mind I think uh, it took me a while to actually recover from being gobsmacked that I'd got into this big 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 company but I guess what happens is wherever you are right you adapt to your environment so so within six months it becomes your you know to coin the phrase new normal mm -hmm. it adjust to any environment um, and then it became apparent to me that a massive organization um, the navigation through it that I was going to have to do it myself, that that was absolutely down to me, that I wanted, you know, to progress or, do, or have other jobs. That was going to be down solely to me to actually begin to lobby people and actually move across into, into other jobs I wanted. Mm. So look, could, could you talk us through that a little bit? Because this is, this is the area that I've, I've, so I've never worked for a huge organisation. When I was um, at my previous recruitment company working with someone else, it was part of a, a, a huge group, but as a, an individual company, when I joined, there were six of us. It then grew to, you know, 50 or 60 by the time I left and we had, you know, moulded into the, to the group and there was close to a thousand consultants in the group, but we still had that small feel. Um, so I've never worked in that big company environment. I was quite interested by the way that you described the dynamic really and, and what your you had a strategy really didn't you as to, to how to elevate yourself talk us through that yeah, so I, I think any big company and i think not just pharma not just az they're all i mean they're massive they are a series of verticals and they are a series of small companies within one large umbrella so absolutely massive 
Um, and so in order to move between those verticals, so I have my eye on the patient bit from a very early time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, at the interview, I, I thought that I could actually move across into across those verticals. Um, strategy was to actually, I mean, I think everybody, wherever you go, you have to do the day job really, really well and prove yourself. That is the first thing. Mm -hmm. 12 months, you have to absolutely prove yourself in any day job. But then it's it's a case of, uh, for me, I learned to lobby, I learned to network across that business. That's where I learned it, right? That's where I can run a business because I learned to lobby. I found people who worked in the job I wanted. I put up meetings with them after work. I actually did work for those other, other um, departments in my own time in order to get those competencies to move across. So yeah, I was determined I was gonna do it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Rachel, the way you describe that is actually very similar to the experience I had with Big Pharma as well, because having worked for many years on the other side of the fence with CROs, to get in is very tough, as you say. But looking from the in, from the outside in, it looked like a very shiny, uh, well-run organization. And then when you come on the inside of these very large organizations, exactly as you saw, it described with the, with the verticals, that was that has been my experience. But I think the other the other point you made so succinctly is really that you have the opportunity one has the opportunity to shine very quickly and get noticed and recognized for something more than the norm yeah. and i think that's what you're what you're kind of describing isn't it is how you stand out from the crowd how you differentiate yourself but also having that long-term view as to what you want to achieve and and really effectively making that happen for yourself that's that that sounds like what you're describing You've got to make it happen for yourself. And yeah. I think you, I don't know if you found this, Adam, as well, but you've got to have so much, I think, intrinsic EQ, emotional intelligence. Absolutely. Pass out the people who will welcome you for being outstanding and the people who, who might not welcome it quite as much. So, you know, the people are human beings and some people might might not welcome that kind of like, and I won't say upstart behavior at all, but but that kind of um that behaviour of, of, of wanting to challenge the norm, that's not always welcomed. So I think it's a lot of EQ to work out when and where to deploy that as well. No, I, I, that, was, that has also always been my experience, particularly as a consultant working for a, a big pharma company. You know, you're effectively always going to be the outsider. You're always working to a different set of rules. These people know that you're not on the same contracts that they're on. And there is a level of competitiveness around the activities that you're doing and actually the delivery of the things that you're being asked to do. Because invariably, when I've worked for Big Pharma in, in a similar sort of setting, um, I do find that there are certain jobs that the permanent people just either don't want to do or won't do because they think it's outside of their pay scale or they won't, they don't seem to want to roll their sleeves up and get into the dirty stuff. No. And that's where a consultant's role seems to be. That's where there has always been a role for me, for sure. But that's where you kind of differentiate yourself because effectively they're saying, well, this is what we don't want to do. So you can do the low hanging fruit. Uh, they can do the low hanging fruit. But ultimately, it's about other people to roll their sleeves up and do the do the real doing. Yeah. 
and I, and I think I listen in now because we all had the benefit of it, haven't we, with COVID and home working. I listen to um, my partner who um, works in cybersecurity, but for multiple different companies. And I listen to my daughter who's just got her graduate job in an engineering company. And actually I listen to their telecoms and, and mine that I will have with Big Pharma. We could, we've all got the same telecom. I actually sometimes say to Neil, I could, could probably do some of your job, you know, apart from the really technical bits. Yeah. I could do your job. Because most of it's managing people, isn't it? It's managing situations, exactly. Thank you, yeah. Yeah. What I found absolutely correct. There, um, Rachel, was the fact that you, you mentioned about, I guess, getting involved in other sort of vertical business units um, and having that emotional intelligence to know where it would be appreciated and where it wouldn't. How did that go? Did you ever have a time where it backfired and you think, thought, oh, why did I get involved in this? Or did it go well? Did you, did, you know, was it well received by everyone or did you experience um, any challenges with that? I mean, I think, I think most of the time it, it went well. Um, I guess it's how it's positioned. Um, yeah, most of the time it did, because I guess how I would have been positioning it would have been, look, let, let me come and help you. Let me, let me come and do it off the side of my desk mm -hmm. um, and I'll make your life easier. But please let me learn what you do. So, you know, it, it's kind of how you sell it, isn't it? And how you package it. Um, yeah, so most of the time it was. Had it been, um, I suppose, had it been at the expense of my current job, that would have been politically quite difficult for the, the, the incumbent manager. Most of the time it did, I think. Because I'm just thinking at the back of my mind, and I've, I've had several conversations with business owners, entrepreneurs, people that have risen through the ranks, and often particularly as a woman trying to almost take ownership of other areas of, of things, it can be almost like you're stepping on someone's toes. And I know that there's certain, you know, several, you know, male bosses or leaders that don't necessarily like that coming from, if it was from another male, they'd maybe just overlook it. But as a female in business, sometimes that has been frowned upon. Um, so I was just interested to know how that had gone for yourself, but clearly you selected the right parties, you managed it well and it, and, got the results because you were at uh, AZ for quite a long time how, how long were you there in total over a decade actually over a decade but but you know going back to what you said I, I have to say I never experienced there in that snapshot of time um that sexism I never experienced that feeling that because I was I was female there was ever going to be that problem hmm. um, I suppose the only challenges I, I I suppose it was the only challenges I ever encountered would be when the my, my current manager perhaps didn't have the ambition that I had so it takes right. a real leader to manage somebody who's got massive ambition hmm. when you have a lot like yourself you want to just do your day job but you're managing somebody who clearly wants to go across the chain that's going to go one of two ways you're either going to be a great leader and let them go or you're going to be a little bit threatened so I'd say that's perhaps the only time it's quite difficult for somebody to mm -hmm. move that chain. I don't know Adam if you feel the same that if you come across that. Well I mean success isn't a straight line is it? It never is. You, you come across all sorts of different personalities and I think what I've experienced is just that over the years like you know the, the manner in which you and I have connected is one of those examples isn't it through professional networks and like-minded people there seems to be an affiliation and collaboration of 
of people, of good people who have good principles. And, and that was how you and I, I think, initially connected through, through rare disease space and some of the work that I've been doing with, with some rare disease guys. Um, so I, I think there are you know, an, an awful lot of similarities there. But I, I also just find more and more, I don't know whether you also do, that birds of a feather seem to be flocking together, particularly more and more in, the, in, in post-COVID times, mm. um, just because of the nature of, of how we're connecting with people and choosing to spend our time. You know, this being a case, case in point, you know, we are choosing to have these discussions, to, to do things that we perhaps would never have challenged ourselves to do before. Yeah. That, you know, we are all outside of our comfort zone in the fact that we're doing something different. Yeah, totally. And it's almost equalised everybody, hasn't it? That I found as well now on a call, because we're all on Zoom, everybody's, you know, in, in more casual dress, everybody's got dogs and kids, and you're kind of digitally intruding into someone's home, aren't you? It's, um, I love looking at people's homes when they actually come, and I hate it when they've got a background, a Zoom background, because I, I like to see what's going on in their house. I, I, I'm quite, I'm quite open when I say to people, uh, you know, when they come on with a, with a, a fade out behind, I think they're hiding something. And some people say to me, well, I'm in my kitchen. I'm like, well, I don't mind. You know, I'm quite happy to look at your kitchen. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have anything to hide. I think it shows a, a certain genuineness and, and humility around, you know, this is where we're at. Um, we have a choice, you know, I could change my angle of camera and you could see all sorts over that side. And similarly out, out there, there's a window, but you know, we choose we choose the filter in inverted commas, don't we? We all choose our own filter. What what we're comfortable with. I mean, James has got a lovely backdrop, by the way. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the benefit of having a nice partner who is into a bit of interior design, making whatever wherever I sit look look much better than, than what I do on my own. So um, <laughs> oh, don't be. Hard. Um, but look, Rachel. So you were at uh, AstraZeneca for over a decade. Um, what, where did the decision then come to move on from, from that? And where did your, your journey take you from, from then on? It, 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 well, what happened for me was that, I mean, I loved working for that company. I mean, I've seen the world working for that company. But it, what happened for me was that AstraZeneca um, relocated to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a really difficult year. So we were told, I, I remember, and this is, I suppose, I hope not oversharing, but sharing. So my dad died. And I remember we had, and I'm, I'm sorry, my mum died. My dad died subsequently. My mum died. And we had my mum's funeral on the Friday. And on the Monday, I got made redundant from AstraZeneca. And, and I remember coming home and sitting there thinking, whoa, these two big things in my life, um, that I'd kind of, you know, these two, if you think of them as a stool, the two legs of the stool kind of fell off in about three days, the space of three days. Yeah, yeah, three days between them. Wow. And AstraZeneca had, um, was going to relocate to Cambridge. And I was a single mum at the time and I had two small children and I wasn't going to be relocating to Cambridge. Um, and I guess personally, I absolutely then, maybe I was ahead of it at that point, believed that we could be location independent, that I didn't have to go and up and lift everything to Cambridge. Um, and I wasn't going to do that. But the redundancy period, the way it worked out that we were all needed, lasted actually three years. So the three years of knowing I was going to leave that company, um, it, it was a three year period of, of knowing we were going to exit whilst um, that transfer down to Cambridge occurred and buildings were being built and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I guess I chose after that 
it's after those two big life changes, I, I chose to make something of the three years. So I chose not to, um, I suppose, be a victim or obviously there was a lot of grief to overcome and I had to go through the curve twice, you know, kind of double curve, a curve squared really, isn't it? Mm. Those things hitting at once. But I, um, I decided to take control of it. And at the same time, there came a project to um, help deliver patient centricity, patient engagement into AstraZeneca to help deliver that change program. And um, I desperately wanted to do that and desperately wanted to take to have that project. And um, possibly before I would have actually been a bit reserved. It was, it was being delivered at a very high level. But I remember, and I'll name her, one of my friends, Siobhan Southam actually said, go for it, what have you got to lose? So I did go for that project and I did get to deliver that project. And that changed everything for me as well because my final few years, working my redundancy actually, were delivering what I'd always wanted to do. I brought the customer closer to AstraZeneca. That's what I wanted to do when I joined that company. Mm. So we, we did deliver that, that project. We even published it, we published it in the BMJ. Um, we brought patients close to the strategy for AstraZeneca. We did, we did tons of stuff. It was amazing. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, and that enabled me to make that transition out and have the confidence really to, to go and go it alone. Wow. Yeah. Well played. Bravo. Remarkable events. Yeah, losing, losing your, your mother, getting made redundant, then subsequently losing your father, being a single mum to, to then coming out of, of that having delivered on, on what you had kind of set out to do and then entering into entrepreneurship. What? <laughs> I've got a rubber back. That's, that, that's, that's <laughs> adversity. That's adversity faced head on, I would say, Rachel. Yeah. You know, absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. What, would, what would you say was the, the most challenging of, of those times, Rachel? Because it sounds like there was a lot on your shoulders. Um, I know even running a business, on, you know, as a, as a couple and having a, a young son is tough enough at times, but you had a couple of um, dependents, you know, looking up to you for support um, without your own parents to, to support you, which, you know, sometimes we all call into to parents to, you know, get some babysitting duties, et cetera, where we can. How did, how on earth did you manage this and how, like, like both logistically and mentally? I don't know. <laughs> failure wasn't an option by the sounds of it it was I not i don't know i think i think i probably deal thing with things by so i um i deal with things by boxing them up and then dealing with them later so i dealt with the grief and all of that much later on um which is weird for me because a lot of a lot of people actually i deal with stuff when people think i should have got over it and mm. I'm just beginning that process when other people would have dealt with it so I kind of displaced those emotions so that's what I did I boxed them up and I'm not saying that's good because that come back it does come back to bite you really mm. um, you come back to reflect upon it so um, that I think and I I mean I, I suspect I was quite lucky in a way because all through my career, AstraZeneca had been incredibly, because it was a, a part Swedish company, incredibly flexible. So um, I, I think that was lucky as well. That was, I couldn't have done it had I worked for the NHS or worked as a pharmacist. That would have required me to, you know, be there at certain fixed hours. So combination of flexibility of, um, 
dealing with the stress by pushing it out of the way a little bit. I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do, but I did. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever I would say, I mean, I'm no expert. I've, you know, I've been fortunate enough that, you know, I've never been put in any um, situations like that. So, you know, can't cast any, any judgment. And I'd say to anyone, it's, it's whatever works for you, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. But look, so you, you landed yourself in, in the world of entrepreneurship, um, which brings with it many more challenges. Um, how did how did that start off? How many were, uh, were there at the beginning? Were you in an office? Talk us through the setup. So when I when I left AstraZeneca, um, I had two two pieces of unfinished business. I wanted to go and study behavioural science, so um, to the point of the behaviour and the person and the all around the pill bit. So I did go and enrol and studied behavioural science. And what I did was I actually um, I consulted for first eighteen months. So I consulted to a number of companies, and, mm-hmm. and obviously coming straight out of pharma, pharmacist, behavioural, all that kind of stuff was was very saleable. Um, and it became obvious to me that when I was working for other people, I, I just wanted my own baby. It, I just had to have my own baby. Um, and the, and the driver was never to make money or um, obviously, I, you know, we, we all like to have a certain standard of living, but the driver was to be able to, I suppose I always say to people, I don't know, buy the toilet rolls and do the strategy and employ the staff and pitch and drive it forward. I actually like that, that width of responsibility, mm-hmm. that driver. Um, yeah, I had to have independence, to- flexibility. Yeah, flexibility. If you do, I don't know if you've ever done either of you the values exercise where you have to list your top 50 values, then eventually you have to bring them to three, which is your absolute values. And, and one of mine is freedom and creativity, but I also like safety. So there's a little bit of attention going on there as well. And it's really interesting if you do it, the three values, nobody can ever displace those values from you. So I've had that freedom, flexibility and creativity ever since I was born. I think they're probably intrinsic. I think mm. with all of us, those values. I think, I think you know, following on from your point, James, you know, having experienced some adversity around work as well and experienced redundancy, the fact that you had three years to get used to that is great because I never did. <laughs> I got I got very little notice. And so it was a little bit of a kick in the in the in the oh, curlies. But but three years three years to prepare for that at least gave you some some perspective and and, and really uh somewhere to work back from, particularly, you know, with the challenges that you were faced with at the time. Um, funnily enough, I was working, I was working for AZ at that time that that announcement was made for Covance, because I was running lots of studies on behalf of AZ through Covance. And it took years, and it has taken years to move that site from uh, Audley Edge down to Cambridge, where I actually went only a couple of weeks ago for the first time. Um, And it's an incredible place. And yet, it's taken such an enormous amount of investment time. And, and I know so many people who were affected and decided not to tran- transfer them, themselves, their families down to Cambridge because, you know, they're two different ends of the country on a whole different scale, different, aren't they? Particularly if, you know, if you're embedded in the Northwest, your family's embedded there, it's a completely different part of the country. It's very, very different culturally on, on many different levels. You know, that must have sent shockwaves through tens of tens of hundreds of people at the, at the time that those announcements were made, I would imagine. 
yeah it was dreadful because it impacted uh, not not just us but when that happens to any company that impacts that whole infrastructure in that area it impacts travel companies we did yeah. a lot of traveling impacted taxi companies uh, the whole shooting match was hugely impacted by it and and you it's impacting at that point you know had i been 20 i could have done that move to cambridge but you're mm. impacting people in their kind of 40s 40 plus aren't you really at that yes. point and they have begun to get other things in their life that are more or equally important aren't they at that you, point? you've already put your roots down yeah that's that's the point and and the other full circle loop of that is that i've subsequently been back to Audley edge and seen what an incredible site it is now as a biohub you know it is absolutely transformed and again it has transformed the area for a positive so we've now got you know two incredible medical centers of excellence there's 200 plus businesses that were spun out of not just az but actually uh life science was invested enormously in that area wasn't it and subsequently the same as happening in and around Cambridge and there are other hubs around the UK where that's happening so I, I think it, it kind of speaks to the point around the investment in UK life science research and development and where we are today with the fantastic pharmaceutical companies and transformations that are, are happening every day now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, where, where did you go from there because like, so your values um, was it freedom, creativity, and flexibility? Yeah, the fourth one is safety, but well, yeah, that, that's a bit safety. Yeah. That, that doesn't almost yeah. seem congruent with, with the other ones, almost. Um, but look, yeah. that took you through, you know, being a consultant. Um, you then ended up getting into founding a business. Um, give us a snapshot. How's, how's that going? Because that, again, brings, brings more challenges. It's it's different, you know, and often when you first start it, everyone all, all of a sudden thinks you're a business owner, you're a millionaire, you know, it's often not the case. Um, and you're just like, guys, I'm still working ridiculously hard. I'm up early, I'm up late. I'm, you know, doing more hours than what I used to do when I was on a nine to five. And at the start of it, getting very little in, in return often. Um, so, you know, how, how are things going? How did it start? How, how are things going now? So I think... Um... I mean, how it actually started was I met my business partner um, as I was leaving AstraZeneca, actually, and he, I met him through my friend who had encouraged me to do the patient engagement work. She was traveling back from a course uh, conference in Barcelona, swapped business cards and, and the rest is history. And Rob had had a history of running businesses. So Rob had run digital agencies in Manchester and had actually sold out really successfully. So he probably shares some of those same values of that. You know, he's not a corporate animal, he would admit that. And so I think for me, I, the introduction was made, we began to work on co-projects together to understand could we, you know, have, could we work together? Um, and we are a Venn diagram. We absolutely bring that, that pharma and medical piece and he brings that entrepreneurial piece and we meet in the middle with the behavioral bit. But I think, um, so I don't, I think that, I don't know if I could have done it on my own without somebody who'd actually been an entrepreneur because I think Rob frequently, if it, and, and it is really, they, they do that, don't they? There's that visual of being in corporate is like a hamster wheel and running a company is that up and down. It is like a, a, a kind of sine wave, isn't it? With uh, you know, crevasses and, and, and it is like that. Um, 
And I don't know if I could have done that without somebody who'd been through that, who went, yeah, this is normal, let's just push through. Um, that, I think you perhaps need that. So maybe if you're brought up in a family, but I was brought up by accountants and accountants are not entrepreneurs. They, they really are not, they, they are fiscal controllers. So that, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's, that's been a challenge for me. So risk averse, I think risk averse by, by very nature, aren't they? Totally, totally, so I was brought up by accountants. So, but desperately wanted to, to run a business. So, um, so that, I think that, that's the match really, being in business with somebody who's done that before, but I bring the corporateness really and bring it, bring it, I suppose, through and say, well, that's actually what the customer's thinking at that point. Mm. Um, never mind what they're saying. Actually, that's what they're thinking. Actually, that's what their drivers are, because I've, I've been that customer. So, you know, never listen to just what a customer is saying. Actually look at their body language, look at what their drivers are, because that's the deep insight that's driving whether they are going to work with us or not not what they've said not what the rfp will say it's their deep personal needs which will drive that sale people buy from people always and you were bringing that emotional intelligence that you spoke about earlier you know to, to the table and that was you know the, the dynamic that you guys had um so look, what does what does life look like at, at switch now how many staff are you at are you hybrid are you remote are you in the office what's what's the what's the deal at the, at the moment we did, we did have an office we did we we were actually at that biohub adam that you talked about oh. um so we were at the biohub for a little bit um then we got um a, a, a quite a cool office in a, in a little place called congleton which is in the middle of cheshire we got an ex-tobacco factory so it is really really cool mill building but then covid hit so there are five full-time members of staff but we have a circle of people surrounding us so the model is that we have five full-time engaged people but we do have that that model of developers software developers we have writers we have um we have a psychologist so i'm not a psychologist by training i'm a behavioral scientist so we've got a clinical psychologist joining us we've got a number of people surrounding us and i think one of the reasons we've got those people a couple of reasons we've been in the industry long enough for three reasons second one is many people left astrazeneca there's a whole silicon valley up north of yes. providing that expertise who chose not to move they chose yes. to actually provide freelancing services so there's a silicon valley of hundreds of thousands of people all delivering medcoms and strategy and digital um and i and i think the third one we all said because we're fun to work with actually that we manage to we're nice to work with you know we do rob will always say we we have a laugh we're very transparent we're very open um and we do stuff that we love actually you know obviously we have stuff that we have to do and we have to deliver most of the time we yes i think I think we're probably quite fun to work with quite I, I, I get the distinct impression you do you do the work always with a smile on your face don't you rachel <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, I think you and I have spoken a number of times and, and I always get that that impression all the time. I think your personal and professional is consistent. You know, you are the same person. You are that yeah. rounded individual and that's what you put out. It has to blend. I mean, obviously there are bits, aren't there, the, the accounting and that kind of stuff that you know has to be done. There's there's discipline and that and we have to do that kind of stuff but but most of the time yeah I think honestly I think I'm really lucky I open that laptop every day and I am I'm gobsmacked by some of the stuff I learn some of the stuff I see 
Um, and I felt that at AstraZeneca as well. Some of the data I would see that was a game changer. I, I think I think all of us, I think we're quite lucky actually in the environment we're in, whatever we've been through. I think that's quite lucky. Well, I think we're at that point now. I say we, I yeah. think all three of us actually are, are very much in the position where we're doing the things that we enjoy for the reasons, for the right reasons, you know, not because someone is telling us to do them. We are all here of our own volition and making our own choices to be here. And that's that autonomy and the, the drive to, to really live your passion in the work that you do it comes across with you. I think also with James and myself, you know, we are all extremely principled around the, you know, the things that we do. Just that enjoying yourself element you know, I'm a, I'm a recruiter. So, you know, when I'm recruiting for people, I don't just look at the role and responsibilities because let's face it, you look at most job descriptions or you see the adverts, you're like, that's a job description. It is so boring. Um, and you're like, who wants to know that they're going to be doing this? But if you can say you're going to be working with this team, this individual, and as, as you said, Rachel, that we're, we're fun to work with, that makes, that makes a job. You know, otherwise you're just you're just carrying out responsibilities. Nobody wants to just carry out responsibilities. People yeah. want to work in a team doing something that they like. And there might be some tasks that you don't necessarily, they're not going to be your favourites, but you do them because you know that is part of, of the, the package towards, you know, the end goal. So I think you've, you've absolutely nailed that side of uh, things by the, uh, by the sounds of things. Um, but look, what are the, have perhaps been the biggest challenges and what is next for you guys at switch um you know if, if you were to talk about your plans for the next 18 months two years what's what's on the cards i think biggest challenge has been possibly as a a small company um a small company that can do big things and is highly experienced but i, I guess getting noticed so um yeah, a small company getting noticed, I think, and getting on the on the books really of, of, of extremely large companies. That's hard for any boutique or small agency or consultant. That that's quite hard because I think the way in which the everywhere is structured now, it doesn't it's industry agnostic, isn't it? That a lot of blue chip will hire other big agencies, there'll be a certain limited list. And I suppose I, I would challenge that in that if you see big industries as an ocean liner, actually maybe sometimes the yachts around the side that are agile and really inventive and really fun to work with, maybe you want to actually try the yachts sometimes, you know, to help drag that ocean liner along. You're describing a book that I read a while back now uh, called Small Giants, I think it was. Okay. It's talking about smaller, more entrepreneurial companies not wanting to become these big ocean liners, but actually just being amazing at what they do and therefore absolutely clearing up. Um, and I think that that's, I think that there will be more of these as we go forward because everyone can work remote. There's less barriers to entry, etc. And actually, you find a specialist in your subject, whatever that may be. That's where you want to be making, you know, forming those relationships. And I think even the verticals in the big, um, you know, corporates need to perhaps be looking at them that themselves. I think the other. <laughs> Sorry, you oh, go ahead. I was going to say also, I think you mentioned niche boutique consultancies. Yeah. 
there is always a role. There are always gaps to fill. There will always be things that the big farmers can't do and won't do. But mm. actually, you know, you can be parachuted in with your skill set and you can fix something very quickly in a very agile approach like you've described. Yeah. And, and, and that may produce long-term gains, but, but certainly it will, fix a, it will fix a problem very quickly because you can just act upon it. Mm. You, know, you don't have those layers of bureaucracy and um, pol political issues to get through. Once you've got the, the signature on the paper, you're there, aren't you? That's how you work. Don't you? And you do. And, and I think also small companies can actually be quite at the cutting edge of a lot of tech, of a lot of change. Um, you know, we, we can actually maybe go to a conference, make a decision that we're going to take on board an expert in that area or pilot something or do some research. We can do that very, very quickly. There is a layer of, of, you know, we are the board members, so we can make that happen really, really quickly, but also with an experienced couple of pairs of hands as well. So, yeah, that, that would be the challenge, but the opportunity, I guess, James. Fine. And then on the, on the word of opportunity, so... What is the opportunity going to look like when you guys seize it? What's 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 in store for you guys? Oh, what's in store for us? So um, I, I think actually beginning to make more noise. So I think um, yeah, being I, I think more more present, making a bigger noise. Um, I mean, there is um, and there's a guy I follow called. Um, Daniel Priestley, and I think I've mentioned him before actually, which is prolific beats perfect. So that any business, actually any, it doesn't matter what area we're in, that actually it's not about knocking on doors and cold approaches, it's about being a thought leader. So expect more of that thought leadership that we're okay with longer sales cycles because we see it is that no like trust that I don't want to make a quick sale. I want to actually go through that no like trust and have a long-term relationship with my customers. That's so expect to see a lot more of that thought leadership, expect to be, we're already doing it. But I suppose a little bit more bullish in that area. I, like, I agree with that because I think we're all changing the way that we buy. You know, it's it's very rare that you will buy something off the, the back of a cold call these days. It's because you've seen someone online, you've seen their marketing, you've seen their post on, on LinkedIn, and then maybe a call comes in or you you know you connect and you've already got that familiarity. So look, I think that's a fantastic strategy. And Daniel Priestley, I, I think I'll have to, to look him up. Yeah, I, I did actually do some work with him. Did did some of it. Did some courses with him when I left AZ. So that was quite, actually quite transformational. Yeah, and seven touch points to actually convert from not knowing somebody into a customer. That's seven seven touch points. Interesting. Definitely be, be looking that one up. Well, look, we've um, got towards the end of the show here, Rachel, and um, one thing that we do with all of our guests, Adam, isn't it? Uh, a quick fire round just to. Get some snippets of knowledge and insights from you. I think we've had a lot, but to be fair, yeah, <laughs> there, there are some other questions, of course, we'd like to ask. Going to go, I think. I, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> um, so look, I'll kick us off with quick fire question number one, and that is, what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Follow your guts, follow your yeah. heart. There, there for a reason. Fantastic. You, you've made, you've mentioned a couple of books as well um already yeah. are, there, are there any other any other resources or books on your bookshelf that you're reading at the moment you want to share with our audience loads of stuff so um the dip which is a really quick one by seth godin which talks about um and i don't know if i've cracked this one yet but actually when you go into a dip 
is it something you're going to push through or should you reverse out? Is it a cul-de-sac or is it just a dip? So the dip talking about when things are difficult, that's often a sign that you should push through. And 10% of people push through, don't they? And 80%, 90% retreat. I love Seth Godin. His book is Tribes, isn't it? It's the Tribes one. Oh my gosh, he's absolutely spectacular. I've listened to him on loads. Yeah, I've listened to him on loads of podcasts. He is incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I was talking to my neighbour only yesterday about him, actually, because it sounds like me and my neighbour are listening to the same podcast. And he is an accountant, funnily enough, but he's not your standard accountant, let me tell you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And look, um, the next one, again, you've already touched on, on your, your values. Um, so this is pretty much answered already. But look, what are the top three qualities that you value most when building a, a team? A team. Um, so I will look for transparency. I will look for openness. I'll look for humility. I may have given you more than three. But I also think my view is um, I'm very keen on if somebody's got the ability and the attitude we can, I believe we can train them to do almost anything. What I don't look for is a carbon cutout. That's, that's a big thing of mine, that people don't have to have be a carbon cutout. They have to have personal attributes and ability, and we can make them into anything, actually. 100%, I'm, I'm the same. I, I tend to hire people that I like. Again, no like trust Yeah. You know, for, for me. If, if that's it, I'm like, you're joining my business. It's down to me to, to show you what's good. You to execute it, you know. So if you know someone, you like them, you trust them, you know, they're gonna have fun with you doing it. It's so much easier to do that. So definitely agree with that one, Rachel. And we've talked we talked quite a bit about what you do within in work. What is it you enjoy when you're when you're outside of work? What do you do for downtime, dare I say? And, and please don't say work, because I don't believe you. I do do work, but um, I do. I do listen to behavioural science podcasts when I'm walking the dog, but but um, oh, oh, loads of stuff. But um, I actually love cooking. That's how I will unwind. But I do like kind of superfood cooking. So green shakes and I, 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 you know, I'm at my happiest with a cup of tea, a pack of biscuits, sounds awful, and loads of cookery books flicking through them. Um, and often I collect loads and don't even cook from some of them. But uh, yeah, cooking, I think. Yeah. You had me sold at the biscuits, not so much on the green shakes, I don't think. Oh, no, the green shakes, for sure, yeah. <laughs> what is um, the, the final question for you then, Rachel? What is your number one golden rule for life and business? It's, um, it's people. It's all about people. People make business, don't they, and life. You know, if I, if I say to you, everything I've described to you, there has been a person involved in that, you know, it, it's not been a CV, it's been a person who's almost given their hand out and pulled me into the next part of my life. It's all about people. Fantastic. Well, look, and I think, you know, this this podcast has been all about you. You know, we're not looking at a CV, we're hearing it firsthand. And that is what people like to listen to you know so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show uh rachel for anyone looking at to to reach out to you afterwards whether it's investors potential employees people that are interested to hear more about switch um you said you're going to be more more visible what what is the best way to get hold of you 
Oh, email me, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can supply that, but it's r.jones at swii.ch. So the II is Intelligent Insights. That's what that stands for. Fantastic. Well, look, we'll make sure we get that published along with the show and, and everything else. But Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, have a fantastic evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been That's a pleasure. Nice. Cheers then. Thank you.